Ephesians chapter 5. My goodness, we have only one verse that we're going to talk about today, but we are going to talk so much about it. I will most likely preach for an hour, and uh, I just want to prepare you for that. Some people can't deal with an hour of preaching, so there's probably churches that are better for you if you can't deal with that. (laughs) Not to be insulting, I'm just being honest. We're just going to do it. So we're talking today about spirit-filled mutual submission. Spirit-filled mutual submission. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, as we know. This little vignette of scripture here makes sense if we pick it up in verse 15. We'll read through 15 to 21. 21 is our subject today. Starting in Ephesians 5, 15, the word of God says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, in other words. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we understand that your word is living and active. We believe it and we trust it. And we joyfully expect that your Holy Spirit works through your holy word. And today is tough stuff, being subject to one another. It's stuff that quite frankly, our flesh doesn't want to do. The devil doesn't want us to do. Culture would not applaud us doing it in any real meaningful way. And yet your word and Christ, your example, and the very essence of your gospel is calling us to be humble, mutually submitted people. And that's your will for the church. And I would confess that I struggle with this. And that we do. And in our lives, we're so concerned with our stuff and ourselves and what we want, that we spend very little time being concerned with what others need. And we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts and make us more like Jesus. And we need you to do that. We can't do it ourselves, and we thank you that you haven't asked us to do it ourselves. We thank you for the power and the person of the Holy Ghost who transforms us and conforms us into the image of Christ, that we might live in a new way, a better way, for the glory of God, for the purposes of your kingdom in the world. And so God, please anoint me as I teach and preach and please give us ears to hear. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we discussed last week, this part of the book of Ephesians is now dealing with how we live out the implications of our new identity in Christ. How we live out the implications of our new identity in Christ. It started in chapter 4, verse 1, where we're exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Live in a way that is worthy of what God has done in our lives through Christ. Since we, the church, are the beloved of God, since we have been loved and chosen from before the foundations of the world, since we have been set free from sin, its penalty, its power, by the blood of Christ, then we ought to live in a certain way. And we especially ought to live in a certain way in light of the command that we studied all summer long in verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
If we are truly being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is going to be transformation in our lives. Things cannot possibly stay the same. It may be a slow, arduous process for some of us, slower and more difficult. But if we are seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit through prayer continually, then there will be a change in the very essence of who we are and hence the way that we live. This part of the text here is talking about implications of being filled with the Spirit, the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember this summer the paradigm that we explored with regards to the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always seeking to exalt Christ, right? Work holiness in the believer and send us on mission into the world. And last week we were talking about the Holy Spirit's work of exalting Christ in us as we talked about worship, verses 19 and 20. And now we're going to be discussing a little bit of the concept of the Holy Spirit working holiness in us if we'll understand holiness in this way. Here's how we can define it for our purposes this morning. Holiness involves becoming more like Jesus. Holiness involves the believer becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, if we think about that, I want us to understand this. One of the key attributes of Christ is that he is self-sacrificing. No doubt, right? The cross of Jesus Christ. He is self-sacrificing and humble. And what our text today is saying is this. Because of Christ, out of reverence for who he is and what he has done for us, and by the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, Christians are to live then in a self-sacrificial, humble way with and toward one another. That's what the text is saying when it says in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. Now, brothers and sisters, there are very few things that Scripture asks us to do that are more challenging than this. Being subject to one another. Why is it such a challenge for us? Because we are tremendously selfish. Can we be honest for a moment? We are tremendously egocentric, selfish, selfish, self-oriented people in general. We love ourselves and we love to have our way most of the time. Now, culture is no friend of ours when it comes to this deficiency. Our predominant cultural orientation is what social scientists call radical individualism. Not just individualism, radical individualism. Okay, here's a definition. Radical individualism is the belief that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take place over the well-being of any group, our church or family included, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. Radical individualism says what is not important is who I'm connected to. What is important is who I am and what I want to do and my needs being met. And American culture has, pandering to our sinful nature, socialized us to extol and pursue personal happiness and fulfillment over connections with others, and responsibility to them. Personal fulfillment takes precedence over our connections to others, our commitments to them, and our care for them. And how we often, as radical 
individualists see things is that our communities are to be used and disused as far as they lend themselves to the achievement of our personal goals and sense of well-being and satisfaction. Now, here's the deal. When the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, and continually so, the main pursuit of holiness, of God's Spirit working in us, is to confront and overcome this radical self-orientedness. The main work of the Spirit in you is to confront and overcome this radical selfishness. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, if you would. Galatians is right before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 13, Galatians 5, 13, it says this. Speaking of our salvation, and then we'll get to the Holy Spirit. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh, okay, this is that self-oriented sin nature. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now, as the list continues, look at how self-oriented this is, okay? Enmities, okay, these come from selfishness. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Listen how other-centered these are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, sinful, self-oriented nature, with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. You see, what this text tells us is that the Spirit of God is radically opposed to the sin nature, which is self-oriented, and that our selfishness is inherent. It's part of our fallen nature, okay? It's inherent, and it's encouraged. It's nurtured in us by culture. And the hindrance to unity and harmony in any relationship, marriage, friendship, work, church, is the assertion and exaltation of self. This takes us back to the book of Ephesians now, turning there, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul, again in verse 1, says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent, working hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, forbearance. These things are a challenge in any and all relationships. In the church, marriage relationships, work relationships, family, extended family. We all have relational woes and many of them. And all of our relational woes come from our insistence on self. James chapter four, verse one says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? In other words, what we demand for ourselves, selfishness. When I sit down with couples who are in a tough spot in their marriage and they say, well, tell me the story, what's going on? There's always just a a very clear thread of selfishness. They're not meeting my needs and I want my way and I'm not getting it. Oh yeah, well, you're not doing this for me and I want that and you haven't fulfilled this. And it's not just marriage, it's all sorts of relationships. It's business relationships, it's friendships, and it's in the church. This primary concern, many people come to church with this as a primary concern. How are my needs going to be met today? Who's going to care for me and minister to me? Is everything going to be good for me? And scripture says that that is the source of so many of our difficulties, And our text is saying that an attitude of self-denial and concern for the needs of others is essential. It's commanded for within the Christian community to put the needs of others. This is tough stuff. As I'm saying it, I'm convicted. To put the needs of others before our own desires. Now, let's be honest. That sounds incredibly pious because it is scriptural, but it sounds ludicrous to truly put the needs of others before my own. We pay much lip service to it within the church, but our relationships are evidence of the fact that we seldom truly do this. At least that's the case for me. It's incredibly difficult in our radical self-orientedness. That is why Ephesians chapter five presents it not as something we are to muster on our own, but as the result or the fruit of a life that is submitted to the Holy Spirit. This is part of the results of continually being filled with the Holy Spirit who is changing us from the inside out to be more like Jesus. And our text is telling us that the mark of a Spirit-filled church is not just its fervency in corporate worship, which we talked about last week, but it is its fervency in mutual submission, love for one another, humility, and caring for each other's needs. What is a church that is filled with the Spirit? The one that is most concerned one to another. As I was studying for this sermon earlier in the week, I was in my office at home, and my sweet little pregnant wife, Kate, came in and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm studying for Sunday, sweetheart. And she said, oh, what's the sermon about? I said, it's about submission. And she went, ooh. (laughs) She actually said, that's a dirty word. (laughs) 
That's, that's what she said. Because in our culture, she's very submissive, by the way. In our, <laughs> in our culture and in popular vernacular, the word submit is viewed largely in a pejorative way and seen as a sign of weakness or something that one should avoid at all costs, right? If you, if you hear submit, you think, oh, that's, that's bad. I mean, it might have been my tone, but even when we say, well, you know, you just need to submit, you're like, oh, this is bad, right? It's a, it's a pejorative thing. It's, it's, it's negative. It's to be avoided. It's, it's weakness. It becomes a, a power struggle. But we've got to understand that in the original context, the word submit was not as dirty as it is in our radical individualistic years today. Okay, they were more, a bit more community and communal oriented back in those days. And, and this term in the Greek was used for normal and right social ordering, like a soldier to a commander or like people under the governance of a political power. It spoke of normal, good people living in a normal, orderly manner with normal, good leadership and authority structures. And they were not trying to be seditious or rebellious. It was just the way that society worked. It wasn't a dirty word at all. But it had to do with authority structures and hierarchies. Now listen to me. What Paul and scripture are doing in this verse where it says be subject to one another is taking an unexpected twist for that culture. He's calling all believers to submit one to another as peers. He's not talking as they were in the societal context of authority structure, soldier to commander people to political power. He's saying as peers, where where the footing is evil at the foot of the cross. Evil. Level, excuse me. Sheesh, help me, Jesus. Where, Where the ground is level at the foot of the cross. As peers, we're to submit to one another. Now, this doesn't diminish authority structures within the church. Those exist. That's another sermon. This doesn't diminish roles within the family and household. We'll get to that in the next couple weeks. That's another sermon. But the text is saying this. Forget about submitting because someone is over you and start to think about submitting to one another as brothers and sisters who are all together under Christ who is our head. And by speaking this way, Paul was subverting the normal usage of the term to convey the idea that all believers should defer to one another in the life of the church. Now, where did he get this? He got this from Jesus. Jesus said some radical things, not least of which was when his disciples would fight and bicker as to who was the greatest. Have you ever noticed how often that was the topic of conversation amongst the disciples? They would argue as to which one was the greatest over and over again. In Mark chapter 10, after they'd just been arguing about who was the greatest, it says this, Calling them, the disciples, to himself, Jesus said to them, Now, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? They make people submit. And their great men exercise authority over them. He said, you guys know, pause right there. You guys know that in the world, that's just the way it works. Okay, normal authority submission structures. Look what he says next. But it is not this way among you. Pause right there. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to something different than normal society structures and functions. It is not this way among you, those who are my followers. 
He says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, meaning willing to meet your needs. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then pause right there. Here is the impetus, the motivation, and the theological underpinnings of why he says that. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, even the Son of Man, even God incarnate, even the one, I'm paraphrasing now, look at me, even the one who spoke all things into existence, the one by whom and for whom all things exist, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Turn to Philippians chapter two as Paul presses this upon us. If you have a hard time remembering where Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are, just remember General Electric Power Company. Right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Or you can say, Grandma eats popcorn. Grandma Galatians eats Ephesians, popped Philippians. So Philippians is after Ephesians, Philippians chapter two. Paul's pressing upon us what Christ was saying in Mark chapter 10. Philippians chapter two, verse one, it says, if therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, now look what he says. This is radical. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, there's the command, the imperative. Now now look at the indicative, the theological underpinnings, the reason why we would ever be called to do that. Okay, verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't demand his rights as God. Verse seven, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So Paul just says the most radical thing in echoing the words of Jesus. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Consider those within your community to be more important than yourselves. And we hear that and our little religious falsehood says, oh yes, amen, that's awesome. But there's something deep inside of us that's saying that's insanity. Why? Because I look out for my interests more than I look out for yours most of the time. Are you different? Do nothing with self-concern? I do almost everything with concern for myself. 
Why would he ever have the audacity to say such a radical thing? Because of Christ, who became a man and humbled himself. How much did he humble himself? To the point of hanging naked, beaten, broken, bruised, spit upon, mocked, scourged, dismissed, and despised upon a cross in my place. That is the only reason that we would ever be called to something that is so radical and countercultural and in and of ourselves impossible is because Christ did that for us. And we are Christians, Christians called to follow Christ. And so we do what Christ did and we endeavor to live as Christ lived. And the way that Christ lived was he humbled himself, emptied himself of his rights, surrendered, was crucified in our place. So when it says be subject to one another, it's not just like, hey, can't we just all get along? It is a Christ-oriented, spirit-formed and empowered command. But it is a command. And in the Greek, it's in the middle voice, which means this. Submit yourselves. In other words, you need to do this. It's not in the passive voice. It is something that's done for you by God. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but you need to, we need to daily choose to consider others to be more important than ourselves, to not look out for merely our own interests, but the interest of others. Actively denying ourselves as Christ called us to do. Now, we need to think about what we mean when we talk about submission. Generally, we think that submission means I'm going to tell you what to do and you need to do it. That's not the right idea. The right idea is this. I see that you have legitimate needs and I am willing to meet them at my own expense. That's the idea. Why? Because at his own expense, Christ has met all of our needs. That is why the text says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is why Philippians 2 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. I am willing to endeavor to begin to think about and try to meet other people's needs at my own expense because Christ met all of my needs at his own expense. And for the Christian who is faithfully trying to follow after Jesus, it's almost impossible to resist this impulse, at least the thought within us. Why? Because the spirit of God is in us. And as the spirit of God is filling us, he is always trying to make us more like Jesus. The goal of the Holy Spirit in you is to conform you into the image of Christ. Romans chapter eight, verses 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And I'll stop right there. We love that verse because we interpret it in light of self. We think, oh, this is great. God's going to make everything work out good for me. It's about me. I love it when the Bible's about me. I love in the promises they're saying, it's going to be good for me. God causes all things to work together for my good. Oh, this is good. I like it because I like me. And it's true. It is for your good. But look at how it's defined or explained in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew... 
You were loved before the foundation of the world and chose before the foundation of the world. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What is your good that the Holy Spirit is working in your life in every circumstance, making you more like Jesus? Who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Romans 12, talking about being conformed, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove okay, or experience what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is that we be more like Christ. The will of culture is that we be more like it. Radical individualists. The will of God is that we be radically self-sacrificial for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Don't be conformed to this world, squeezed into the mold of this world, which says it's about you, it's for you, and you need to get your own. Let the Holy Spirit renew your mind who is saying to you, it's not about you, it's about Jesus, it's about what he wants, it's about his glory, and my work is about making you more like him, which requires Humility of mind. Help us, God. When we refuse this work of the Holy Spirit, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Look now back in Ephesians chapter 4. Grandma eats popcorn. Ephesians chapter 4. When we refuse to live in the self-denial way as the Spirit is beckoning us to do and empowering us to do, we actually grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's start in verse 24. Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each, each other, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. You see the radical, radical self-oriented love and care and humility represented in that passage. We see very clearly it's based on the love of God in Christ for us and what Christ has done for us. And we see that it is a work of the Holy Spirit because when we deny it, we grieve the Spirit. 
So what, what would life and relationships and church look like if we were all actually submitted to one another, looking out for each other's needs? It would be radical. Look at the book of Acts. Acts. Acts chapter 2, this description of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayer. This is the early church. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Listen to how stupid this is. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Listen to how radical that is. Nobody does this. They had all things in common. They were selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all. Now people try to do this by living in community and nobody owns anything in this and that. And I don't, I've never seen that work, right? All of our parents tried to do it in the sixties and like fizzled out and everybody fried out and kids are creepy because of it. Like, I don't think that's what, I don't think that's the idea. I just think the idea is they were mutually submitted. They, they looked across the pews and they said, there's some real needs. They have real needs and I have the real ability to meet those needs. And because Christ surrendered his high place and came down to where I was and was broken for me and met all of my needs at his own expense because the spirit of God has filled me on the day of Pentecost and he's always exalting Christ in my heart and moving me toward holiness. When I see those needs across the pew, I just can't ignore it. So I did something crazy and I sold some of my stuff and I, I gave him the money. That's radical. Acts chapter 4 says the same thing. In verse 32, another description of early church. Acts 4, 32. And the congregation of those who had believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not, listen to me, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to right now go sell your home and bring the money to me. (laughs) Although if you do, I will not resist. I'm just kidding. I'm just saying, right? We're so far from this, we can't even wrap our mind around it. And people are always like, we need to get back to when the church was like it was in the book of Acts. We're not like the book of Acts. Sell all your stuff. We, we need to be more like the book of Acts. You have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> How radical this is. Everybody thinks this is awesome, including me, but nobody actually is willing to do it, including me. It starts, though, 
with a mindset formed by the Spirit in light of the cross of mutual submission. I see that you have legitimate needs, and I am in this moment willing to endeavor to meet your needs at my own expense. That's mutual submission. But again, this concept is so radically different from our cultural assumptions. You see, we agree with this teaching in theory when we're raising our children, right? We tell our children sharing is caring and we force them to share and their friends come over and play and they won't share and we grab it out of our kid's hand and we give it to the other kid or vice versa. We grab some other kid's junk and we give it to our kids, share. (laughs) When we're raising our kids, we believe in this so strongly. Sharing is caring. We force them to have this mentality of being concerned with what the other kid needs and the other kid wants. But then we grow up. We don't believe it anymore when we grow up because we don't hold ourselves to the same accountability. Oh, it's one thing when it's a matchbox car or a little dolly or whatever. But when it's my career, when it's my income, when it's my reputation, when it's my house, when it's my Jeep, when it's my surfboards, when it's my stuff, oh, it's not the same thing. We disbelieve it entirely when we grow up because sharing is for kids. But what we know as adults is the way to actually be happy is to look out for my own interests. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, we have the story of Abraham and his nephew Lot. We're just going to read the whole chapter together. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot, his nephew, with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling there together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Okay, conflict is brewing here. Adult conflict. Verse seven, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, okay, look at the attitude of Abram. Please, let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. Why? For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you, he's saying to Lot, please separate from me. If you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. If you want to go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Hey, that's kind of radical, right? That's kind of radical. He's actually saying, I'm going to let you have first choice. There's some options here. And one is clearly going to be better than the other. Always is. I'm going to let you choose first. This is real adult conflict. Like your stuff is messing with my stuff. 
And the guys that work for you, your business is getting in the way of my business. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to let you have first choice. Even though you're my nephew and I change your diapers, you little snot-nosed baby. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you choose. That, that's kind of radical. Verse 10, Lot did what we would all do. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. They separated from each other. I mean, who wouldn't have done that, right? Like, you choose. Okay, that way's best. Like Lot just did what most of us would do. And so Abram was given the leftovers. But look at the turn of events. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan where Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, exceedingly sinners against the Lord. Now verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Here's the moral of the story. An attitude of submission, a willingness to defer, to prefer his nephew Lot, actually put Abraham right in God's will for him. See how counterintuitive that is? His willingness to submit, his willingness to, as we would say in our Christian vernacular, be like Christ, prefer and honor the other, be be willing to defer, actually put him in the exact place that God wanted him to be. If he had functioned to normal cultural assumptions, he would have gone the wrong way. How often are we going the wrong way? Because we're functioning from the normal place that is part of our sinful nature and has been deeply nourished in us of, hey, if you're giving me a choice, I'm going to choose the best. He would have been in the wrong place. You see, we just don't think like that. What we believe about relationships is that for us to feel satisfied, secure, and significant, we have to have others meeting our needs. We feel good in a relationship when our needs are being met. And when our needs are not being met in relationship, we feel frustrated, cheated, and defrauded. We can't be happy unless we're getting served. And the plain truth is that Jesus Christ and the gospel and scripture radically challenge that assumption. They tell us that the actual way to truly be happy, satisfied, secure, and significant is by sacrifice. Abraham was on to something when he deferred to Lot. This is the essence of what Jesus was saying when he said to his disciples, if you seek to save your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, 
you'll find it. You see, the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. This is the essence of what he was saying. There is a different way that he's calling us into being. And this, most importantly, is what the cross teaches us. Dear brothers and sisters who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, if Jesus were like us, nobody ever would have been saved. But in Gethsemane, where the rubber met the road, where all of this concept, this God concept of mutual submission and deference, where all of it came to a head when he was facing the cross and the weight of all my sin about to be placed upon him and Jesus knelt and prayed and was sweating great drops of blood at the reality of taking on the sins of the world. What we heard our Savior say was, nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. I submit to you. James 3 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, okay, self-orientation in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. For this wisdom, okay, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, cultural assumptions, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and willing to yield or submit. Listen, brothers and sisters, Every single day, we are confronted with a choice to be selfishly ambitious and to get jealous and self-oriented and confronting. When we give ourselves to that, we're functioning in the natural realm. Forget about your Christianity at that point. You're just being a normal human. There's no spirit-filled activity there. You're just acting like every other unredeemed sinner in the world when we do that. We all do it so often, but scripture is presenting to us a better way. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield. It's like Abraham. It's willing to say, Lot, you go in the best direction. And when it does that, it finds itself going in God's direction. Now, being willing to yield and submit and consider to others more important worked out well in Gethsemane. For us, thank you, Jesus. And it worked out well in Abraham's life, but it doesn't always work out well, does it? We don't always win like Abraham won when we're willing to defer. You see, when Jesus beckons us to deny ourselves and go the way of the cross, we have to know that that is going to mean some pain and some loss. So what should our posture be when things are going wrong among Christians and we're being wronged and even defrauded and cheated and defamed within the body of Christ, which happens? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinthians is before your grandma starts eating popcorn. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. little Bible workout today, huh? Going to have to bring your Bible to church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. 
Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 1. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who have no account in the church? Here's the point, verse five. The context is Christians were suing Christians, okay? Verse five, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Brethren. Verse six, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Here's the point of the whole thing. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul's simply saying this. Listen, within the Christian community, because we're brothers and sisters under the headship of Jesus Christ, because we have all been set free from sin, death, and the devil by what Christ did for us on the cross in our place, because of that, when we have conflict with one another, the most important thing isn't winning. He said, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wrong than take one another to task. Your sinful nature and culture is telling you, don't, don't let that happen to you. Take them to task. Deal with that. That is unjust. That is an injustice. That is not right. And scripture is saying, there is sometimes something more important than being right. The goal in relationships is not always to win. Scripture is telling us the goal is the well-being of the other. Why? Again, because Christ was treated with horrible, shameful injustice on the cross. And at times, life will be like that for us. And so Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you, in our own relationships, will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You see, over and over again, Jesus is held forward to us as the reason and the example for the call to be willing to submit to one another, esteem others as more important, be subject to one another. And because Christ did so, and because Christ is the example, it says that we're to do it in the fear of Christ. Fear in this context is not talking about terror, it's talking about reverential awe. Because Christ, our Lord, is worthy of being honored. We submit to one another and consider each other as more important than ourselves. Now, we're not called to do this because of who we are to one another, but rather who Christ is. You see, do it in fear of Christ. Christ. 
It's a matter of love and worship for Christ. That's what allows us to do it when the situation is unjust. When the accusation is untrue. When the person is unfair. When there's sin and imperfections, we can still surrender. We can still submit. We can still honor others. Why? Not because of them, because of Christ. Jesus isn't saying, do this with one another because you guys are awesome. He's saying the opposite. We're called to do it because of who Jesus is and because Jesus is awesome. And so every time that we do this, we don't say, okay, you're so worth this. We say, Christ is so worth this. And because he met all of my needs at his own expense and hung naked, beaten, shamed, despised, spit upon and broken in my place, I'm willing to get over myself for this one moment. It's a matter of love and worship. It's a matter of the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mutual submission is where the first commandment and the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, come together and have a baby. And the baby is peace and harmony. We do it for the glory and the love of God. And it is a matter of mission and witness. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Christian life is a call to the way of the cross. There's no other way around it. I've tried desperately to get around it. He's calling us to deny ourselves, to exalt him, and to serve each other. And the way of self-service, the way of self-assertion, the way of demanding that our needs get met is never the way of the cross. It is never the way of Christ who humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross in our place. And so what we see today is that scripture and Jesus and what he did in the gospel challenge us at every turn. So where then are you being challenged today to surrender self? Where are you demanding to be right? Where are you demanding to win? Where are you demanding that your needs be met? In your marriage, in your business, with your extended family, with friends, You see, what we think is that when we're in that fight, when we're in that place, when we're holding on to our stuff, we think that we're just fighting with other people on ourselves, but the truth is we're fighting with God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. This is a matter of worship. Lord, that you would give us grace today to repent of those places where it's all about us and it's costing others. We ask you, the Holy Spirit, you would again fill us today that we might have grace to give ourselves up for the good of one another. Lord, I'm horribly convicted as I preach. I'm radically aware of how far I fall short of this. So we say together, we just need your help, Lord. You're calling us to radical things. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you convict us. We ask that you would.
And then we thank you that you lead us to repentance and you empower us to live in a different way. We ask that you would. And we ask that you would so sanctify us and move in us that we would enjoy the experience and the fruit of being more like Jesus. I can't think of anything better in this world than being more like my Savior and my King. Give us grace to move in that direction, Lord. In Jesus' name.